1: Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JPMorgan Chase Bank, NA Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, JPMorgan Chase & Co. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life.
2: This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by the legendary writer Joyce Carol Oates. Since her debut in 1964, Joyce has published over 50 novels, including A Garden of Earthly Delights, Them, The Falls, and Jack of Spades. She's also written national bestsellers like We Are the Mulvaneys and Blonde, the latter of which has just been adapted into a film starring Anna de Armas out next month on Netflix. Her latest work is called Babysitter, a heart-racing thriller of love and deceit set against the backdrop of 1970s Detroit. It's there in an affluent suburb just outside the city or a child serial killer is on the loose. The novel is inspired by the real case of the babysitter killer, who struck in Oakland County, Michigan, and was never apprehended. You can find Babysitter in your local bookstore, Audible, or wherever you get your books. This blend of fiction and nonfiction is something Joyce has been doing for the better part of 60 years. In this case, the serial killer is real, but the protagonist... A 39 year old housewife named Hannah, whose marriage is on the outs, is fictitious. We talk about the intersection of these two worlds a whole lot in this conversation. We also discuss her upbringing on a farm in New Jersey, her early literary influences, her fascination with examining violence, her tumultuous relationship to Twitter, the joys of writing at age 84, and the pain of losing two partners late in life. We taped this conversation at her home in Princeton, where she taught until 2014. We don't typically do these at people's homes, but every now and then, I'll venture out and do my best impression of an audio engineer. And so, to set the scene, here we were at a table in her living room as her cats encircled us on a hot summer day. And it was then, as I was almost done setting up the mics, that I noticed Joyce pensively looking off into the distance. I couldn't quite pinpoint what she was looking at or what she was thinking about. She just kind of stared ahead for a while, saying nothing at all. And so, as I pressed the record button, I figured there was only one real place to start. This is Joyce Carol Oates. We ready? Yes. Before we we're getting started, you were looking off into the distance here. What were you thinking about?
3: I mean, one's mind is is wandering around. I have many things I think about. But what were you thinking about?
2: I was thinking I want to get through these tech hurdles. Oh, okay. So that we can talk.
3: Okay. Well, I think of an interview as sort of a a genre of fiction. I guess that's very. In- very popular.
2: You once said the phenomenon of the interview alternate world, a world entirely constructed of issues raised only by interviewers. That's right. (laughs) Questions no one ever asked themselves. Questions in which no one is much interested.
3: That's so true. Even if I did say it myself. Yes.
2: Well, in this uh, back and forth, (laughs) I'm going to try to ask some questions that are hopefully of interest to you.
3: Okay, well, I probably also have this quote, which suggests that an interviewer is like being in a canoe. Did you ever see that? Mm -hmm. Well, this is what it really is. Two people in a canoe and they have paddles. And the idea is to have a nice ride and not collapse and not turn over and not drown. And so both have to cooperate. So I always cooperate with the interviewer. I'm not an interviewee who just sits there like it says nothing or says some dumb thing, you know. I feel it's like this, it's this canoe ride, you know? So I'm very cooperative.
2: Well, I'm happy to be on this ride with you. Oh, good. Uh, Your friend, Margaret Atwood, has said that sometimes in the late afternoon, she has a feeling of desperation.
3: Right, panic.
2: (laughs) That sets in. It's a feeling you have shared with her about not getting enough done in the day. Since we are talking in the mid to late afternoon. I figure we start here. How are you feeling?
3: Well, I'm not really thinking about that at all. I did, I did work this morning. I'm working on a novel, so I start fairly early. I mean, I did do some work. I think Margaret, of course, she's being funny. She's a very funny and witty person. And so she's speaking of a certain time in one's life when you don't get much done, and I've had that. But ordinarily, if you just start work at about 7 a.m., you get something done, you know.
2: And how was the work this morning?
3: It was fine. I'm revising a novel. So revision is much less stressful than writing for the first time.
2: This new book is something that is completed, you're done with it. It's called Babysitter. When you finished the book last year, you took to Twitter to celebrate. You said, though it had seemed interminable, like the pandemic itself, a novel I'd begun last fall has finally finished. Like Chuck Close, creating immense portraits through tiny mosaic-like pieces. Working on a novel was a kind of therapy in a dark time.
3: Wow, that's so interesting. I'd forgotten I said that, but it definitely is true.
2: Now that those tiny mosaic-like pieces have come together in this finished book, what is the portrait that you see?
3: Well, that is interesting that uh, that I said that. It did seem interminable, but of course it, it didn't really take that long. It was perhaps less than a year. Do you know how Chuck Close painted? I do. Because he had um, a neurological deficit. He wasn't able to do certain things, so he uh, compensated for that by dividing a canvas up into these little parts, which he could do. You know, you wake up in the morning and think, I can do that. I'm not going to be able to paint the Mona Lisa, and I don't have the kind of uh, agility of Picasso, but I can paint some little pauntilous thing. So with writing, I think it might be a little like that, where you break down what you're doing into chapters, and then there are scenes and paragraphs. I think James Joyce wrote that way also have kind of a an outline or a sense, a map of where you're going, and then each day just sort of move along, a kind of continuum.
2: With this book in front of you, as you reflect on what's in it, what is the bigger picture?
3: The bigger picture? Well, it's a novel. It's a story set in Detroit in 1977, and it's really about interpreting reality retrospectively or in the moment. So... It's a kind of experiment. When one is writing, one is writing in a historical present, you know. But often what one is writing is takes place in the past, like once upon a time. So it's like a summarizing vision where it's all past. I wanted to experiment with the experience of writing something in historical present where it wasn't that clear where it was going, so that there are alternative realities. All those possibilities are very exciting to me. So I have done this a couple of times in my writing. But I'm sort of interested in some ideas that are philosophical, or some of the ideas that classical science fiction writers explore.
2: What are those questions?
3: Well, the the question of where do we actually exist mentally? You know, like when you think back on your life... To an event in your life where at the time you didn't know what was going, is is your apprehension of what you were doing now on some more profound level than it was then? Like you've asked me a couple of times how I feel, what I'm thinking. I have a feeling that we don't really know what our emotions are until there's a, a little phase that's over with. Somebody could say, Well, did you have, did you have a happy childhood? Or say you were married for eight months, you know, was that a happy marriage? At the time you were in it, you maybe didn't know. But then when you look back, you thought, oh, my God, that was the happiest time. That was the happiest time of my life, you know, when I was 12 years old. But I had no idea because then the next year my mother died. I mean, where does the reality of our emotional experience lie? Is it retrospective? Mm
1: -hmm.
3: And maybe when people get older, when they're almost... uh, ready to die. William Butler Yeats spoke of dreaming back. He talks about the mind dreaming back over the life and now assessing it in a way that at the time you lived it, you were not able to do. So th- there are a lot of scenes in the novel where Hannah is in medias race. She's moving, she's in her car, she's on the expressway, she's uh, not quite knocking at the door You know, everything is sort of possible. And she leaves one luncheon, and she says, well, if she goes right, she's going to go to downtown Detroit, and who knows what's going to happen. Her whole life could end. Her children could be endangered. She goes left, she just goes home. And I have some chapters that are in this alternative reality. As a formalist, experimental writer, I use material, so the material that I use in this case is the babysitter and the you know the phenomenon of that being a reality, a historical reality in Detroit.
2: John Updike said that research is the innocent part of writing. What was that innocent period for this book? You alluded to a serial killer in Detroit from the late seventies.
3: Well, since I lived there at the time and I, I remember the uh, experience of being in a a situation that's sort of unfolding the uh, kind of existential drama of each day not knowing what would happen so i had friends i had many friends whom i knew and i know that their children like teenagers at that time they were afraid of this serial killer and then they they sort of teased one another you know he's going to get you You know, like kind of scaring themselves if they were alone after dark or something. So it was kind of like a a fable or a legend that was at that time.
2: A kind of boogeyman?
3: A kind of a boogeyman. So people who lived there at that time who look back on it, they say, oh, we, we used to scare one another. But when they were actually in that time, they didn't know how it was going to end.
2: So that's the backdrop of this book.
3: That's the material. Yeah.
2: The central character.
3: Hannah, yeah.
2: She's 39 years old. Her husband, Wes, is an investment banker from a prominent local family. The couple has two young kids, an impressive house in an affluent community, and a live-in housekeeper. To set the scene, why don't we read from this description on page 14?
3: All right. The calendar. Suburban life in Far Hills, Michigan. Michigan. Tyranny of the Calendar, Weekday Mornings, Afternoons, Appointments, Dentist, Orthodontist, Pediatrician, Gynecologist, Dermatologist, Therapist, Yoga, Hair Salon, Fitness Center, Beauty Clinic, Community Relations Forum, Parent-Teacher Evening Public Library Referendum, Luncheon with Friends, Far Hills Country Club, Bloomfield Hills Golf Club, Red Fox Inn, Far Hills Marriott, Meetings, Far Hills Historical Society, Far Hills Public Library Association, Friends of the Detroit Institute of Arts. Indeed, this spring, Hannah has been invited to be a co-chair of the annual fundraiser for the prestigious Detroit Institute of Arts. The first time Hannah has been so honored, deeply gratified even as Hannah isn't so naive that she doesn't guess, the honor is linked to a sizable donation from the investment firm where West Jarrett is a partner. They will acknowledge me now, they will see that I am one of them. Suburban life, a thrumming, warmth-generating hive. Family life, small, smug hive within a hive. In this, Hannah knows herself secure. She had defined herself wife-mother. She is safe, nourished. She has ceased thinking about how, why she is the person she is. Her hive identity is secure. Outside the Hive, Hannah has little interest, indifferent to news that doesn't touch upon the Hive identity. Rapidly, she glances through the Detroit paper, indifferent to most national news, all foreign news. Inner-city crime news? No. Hardly news. Increase of burglaries in the affluent suburbs north of Detroit, environmental issues regarding a toxic landfill not far from Far Hills, Those obscure crimes labeled as domestic, these snag Hannah's interest, but fleetingly. Domestic violence, people who marry abusive men, women who have not the courage to leave these men, foolish women, weak women, hard to be sympathetic with them. The most frightening news to Hannah, the most distressing, is of a serial killer abductor, child killer, killer pedophile in Oakland County since February 1976. Hannah looks quickly away from headlines. She is secure and protected, her children. None of these abductions has been in far hills. None of the abducted children have been known to Hannah or her friends. No room in Hannah's life for the unexpected.
2: And of course, the unexpected is exactly what happens in her life.
3: Yes, if you're a character in a novel, it has to happen. (laughs)
2: You mentioned how most people go through their days and are doing the things they're supposed to do. Uh,
3: many people, yeah. Some people, many people, yeah.
2: But beneath the surface of Hannah's suburban appointment-filled life is a darkness, a violence that persists through the babysitter and and really so much of your work. You said once, I should probably research lighter elements The darker seems just so much closer, natural, inevitable, and universal. Why do you think the darker feels closer to you?
3: Well, particularly today, I think we're living in such a a kind of crisis-ridden age. What we might call darkness is just this confrontation with the possibility of the world ending, you know, and uh, climate change and the bitter divisions in in politics that we have today, you know, seems so much is coming to the surface. Now, I do remember it wasn't that long ago when people who were sort of outright racist just didn't exist, but they, uh, they may have been racist kind of quietly, you know, but here we have a presidential candidate in 2016 who started saying things about Mexicans and other people kind of openly in a... Sh- in such a way that like the darkness was brought into the daylight. And I think for lots of people, especially young people, I think that was literally shocking. You know, like you might see some horrible thing about Jews or black people written on a fence somewhere, but you would never actually hear it you know, in public and you never have a presidential candidate who would say things like that.
2: You wouldn't hear it as much if you were a white person moving through the world.
3: Well, if you were a black person, you wouldn't hear a presidential candidate say that. Sure. I mean, Nixon was, the expression his dog whistles. Mm -hmm. Like, when Nixon was campaigning, he was campaigning on a platform sort of a racism, but he never said anything like that. You could talk about states' rights, you know, but that's not exactly the same thing as being very openly racist.
2: There was coded language.
3: It was definitely coded. I mean, we always have coded language.
2: I guess the distinction I'm interested in is that when 2016 happened, and even in this current moment, I've heard a lot about how white people were shocked. But when speaking to friends and family of color, Uh. there was not as much of a shock. Uh, Yes, there was coded language in the past. Yes, there wasn't outright blatant racism the way Trump was wielding it. But it seems the shock element is more in line with how white people responded. Or
3: sheltered, relatively sheltered people. Well, I do think it was unusual that a presidential candidate would start saying certain things. and I mean, it used to be, maybe it was a facade, you know, it was more hypocritical. Mm -hmm. But there's something about hypocrisy that's maybe better than this blatant material. So I think for many women, life had been always a matter of the appearances and then maybe there'll be something very violent that might happen to you you know that you you were lucky if you were sort of upper or middle class or educated you're more protected by society but at the same time women always felt that it was a sort of a veneer you know and that they something awful could happen to them Mm. but i guess i'm just much more interested in like in tragedy than than comedy, I I think the Shakespeare Shakespeare's tragedies are just brilliant. I'm not so interested in Shakespeare's comedies. They're well done, you know, and the language is is very clever, but there isn't that profound, really emotional grip that that you get in, in tragedy, where it's like your heart is ripped out. You know, it's it's so powerful. I, I wonder if.
2: That gravitational pull towards tragedy has to do with when and where you were raised. You were born in June 1938 in Lockport, New York. You grew up on a small farm in Millersport. Your father was a sign painter, your mother a homemaker. You attended the same one-room schoolhouse your mother went to years before you. There, you said i thrive like a plant that can only be nurtured in a very small area but would have been destroyed outside this sheltered area describe to me what life was like outside that sheltered area of school
3: well i came from a world it's some time ago now there so really wasn't much welfare or so like we call social Safety net, you know. So if people were poor, I think they were just poor. I, I don't think they got a whole lot of assistance from the township. So there were many, many poor people in the world that I came from. And my classmates who were from these poor families or broken homes, maybe, or a family where a father was a violent alcoholic, they didn't have as much of a chance at life as I did my mother and father were very wonderful stable people and when i lived in a farmhouse with my grandparents my mother's parents so we had like this family and it was very very warm and we had property and a pear orchard and a barn you know and my father actually was a tool and dye designer in Lockport, and he did signs on as an extra so there was a fair amount of income Then there were other families and other broken homes, and these children went to the the one-room schoolhouse. And they were very poor people, and I don't think any of them really went on beyond eighth grade. You could go to school to a certain point, then you could drop out legally. So they just dropped out. Whereas I think I was sort of protected by the accident of my birth. And then some other accidental things happened to, to me, too. Like what? Well, at a certain point, it was mandated that the school be shut down and that students be bused into or could go to Lockport. I don't know whether any of them actually did, but I did. But there wasn't a school bus. You had to make your own way. It was some strange change in the law. So because of that, I started taking a Greyhound bus to Lockport. I went to a, a real school rather than this other school. So seventh, eighth, ninth grade, I was in a real school. That made a big difference. And then again, some township law changed. Now I was bused to Williamsville, New York, which is a suburb of Buffalo, and an affluent suburb. So suddenly I was going to an affluent high school where there were physics classes in chemistry and calculus And my classmates were going to places like Princeton and Harvard. I mean, all that was just accidental. If I had been born a few years earlier, I would just have stayed in a one-room schoolhouse.
2: I want to understand the the duality of your childhood. This glorious accident happened that allowed you to go to these... To school, yeah. Right. yeah. But existing right next to you is what you described in your journal as... Brutal, meaningless acts. Incredible cruelty, profanity, obscenity. Farm boys trained to hunt animals.
3: Yeah, that's the way people talked. But it was a very harsh world. It wasn't my family's world, and I had a nice grandmother who lived in Lockport, too. I think because we had maybe the family unit or we owned our own home and other people were renting houses, you know. And then when I went to a real school, I just flourished it was sort of like a plant that started over here with a lot of thistles, and then somebody put, put it in really good soil, and suddenly the plant just starts blossoming. And so that's, to me, that's an accident. Mm. So I do write a lot about accidents in my life. I think accidents in people's lives are not understood so much.
2: Was it an accident that your grandmother gave you a copy of Lewis Carroll's Alice Adventures in Wonderland?
3: No, anything within the family was not much of an accident because I was sort of ordained. She was my Jewish grandmother. She inherited maybe in her genes just a love, of, a love of books and a love of culture. And all that was sort of passed on to me kind of, you know, unconsciously.
2: What you saw in Alice was someone who never registered terror. She never panics. She never bursts into tears. She never runs away. That's right. I wonder how much of yourself you see in her.
3: She was actually only seven years old in, in the book. You would think this girl is about 10 or 11, but she's supposed, supposedly only seven, which is a little far-fetched. I mean, one of the primary things that I, I was struck by as a girl, I was eight or nine when I read it. Alice talks back to adults. She'll say nonsense. You know, in my, where I came from, Children didn't do that. So all that was kind of liberating or jarring or surprising or something. That Alice could be very, very skeptical and she would just say things like, oh, you're just so silly or you're a bunch of cards, you're a pack of cards, like you're not even real, you know. Those are not remarks that a real child would make. That's Lewis Carroll talking to the world, I think but reading it was very uh, exciting for a girl of my age.
2: Your grandmother very intentionally gave you his books. She also gave you at age 14, a typewriter. It's around this time in high school that you find yourself at the Lockport Public Library on Main Street, discovering the work of William Faulkner. As a teenage girl, Were you aware that this library, and in turn writing, was a kind of refuge?
3: Well, I don't know that I would have had that thought exactly, but emotionally I would feel that way. And my grandmother loved books, as I said. She was always at the library. She would take books out and read a book and return it every every few days. And I would take out like five books each week and, and read them, so... I absorb that without thinking consciously. So whenever I'm in some small town or anywhere, I'm always drawn to the library. Like I really like to go in little libraries. There are a lot of small towns in New Jersey. I just find it so wonderful, like just welcoming. I just feel everything about it is just kind of wonderful. That may be how some people feel about going to church. You know, they go to church, or they're they're in Moscow, or London, or Rome, and they go in and have the same feeling of comfort, uh, which I don't get from church at all. Um, But the library, to me, is just the place that that I would hang out. You know, I would be happy.
2: We'll be right back after a quick break.
4: That's T-Mobile.com unconventional unconventionalawards. I'll save you a seat. Small
0: business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Listen to the Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JPMorgan Chase Bank N.A. Member FDIC. Copyright 2024, JPMorgan Chase & Company.
1: This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global.
2: We all contain different people within ourselves. And the person you just described was a young girl, then a young woman, who found writing and found it something she loved to do as a kind of refuge. But I want to jump ahead to another time, January 16th, 1977, where you write about some of the harder parts of spending your life writing. This is from your journal at the
4: time. January
3: 16th, 1977. My bouts of discouragement, dread, bewilderment. What is the point of a life's work when it can bring upon the writer such cruelty? The average private individual will never open a journal or a book to read vicious things said against him, nor will he come across seemingly objective judgments that would sweep away everything he has attempted. Yes, I've often thought that people like my parents and many people, maybe throughout history, they never actually see or hear anything critical about themselves. I mean, you know, like my mother would never open a magazine and see some bad review of herself, you know, and most people in history are like that. But writers and artists, any kind of creative person or politician, I guess, you could just sort of open a newspaper. And today you'll turn on, go to the internet, and you'll see some awful thing about yourself. You know, it's kind of shocking.
2: There are two quotes I have here. One is from James Wolcott of Vanity Fair. He wrote, Joyce slops words across a page like a washerwoman flinging soiled water across the cobblestones. Truma Capote once said, to me she is the most loathsome creature in America. She's a joke monster who ought to be beheaded in a public auditorium. How does one even process something
3: like that? <laughs> well, I don't think they really read my work, especially not Truman Capote. James Walcott is just a nasty person and he's probably envious of many people. I doubt that I'm the only person he's ever said awful things about. So, I mean, there, there are just, there are reviewers who are sort of like hitmen, and and they, they're cruel generally to other people too. I feel much less Engage with that sort of thing now because I've had so much of it when we are younger writers are much more sensitive Later on you get so much uh, commentary of all kinds. So it kind of balances itself out
2: I bring that up because when we're looking at that 1977 journal You ask what is the point of life's work? When it can be reduced to such terms, and I guess I wonder How did you keep pushing forward?
3: Well, those are only like two people. If you're a woman, let's say, or a girl, you might hear somebody say, well, she's ugly. Or, gosh, who would marry her? I mean, you don't have to be a writer to hear insults against yourself. And as long as it's not a din, like it's not deafening, like it's not the only thing. Most writers who've been publishing for quite a while have received every possible kind of review I mean, you could read that you're the best living writer and then you could read that you're the worst living writer and you could actually read this like within five minutes. So after a while, it just sort of balances itself out.
2: There's an essay in The Faith of a Writer, Life, Craft, Art. There's a passage I like in which you write, I have to concede the more we are hurt, the more we seek solace and imagination. Ironically, the more imaginative work we create in the solitude and publish, the more likely we are to be hurt by critical and public reaction to it. And so again, we retreat into the imagination, assuring that more hurt will ensue. A bizarre cycle, yet it makes a kind of sense.
3: Well, that's true for some writers. I'm not sure that it's true for everybody, or even for me, now. There are some people who don't read reviews. But I think it's true, you know, that the world can hurt us and we, we retreat to the imagination.
2: Do you think this cycle that you described in that essay, do you think it's exacerbated by Twitter?
3: Well, Twitter is relatively recent, you know, in our society and people who are writers now were writing long before that came along. I don't think any of my friends even look at Twitter. But you do. Well, I do, but I I don't think it represents a whole lot of uh, consciousness of America. I think there are are different phases of Twitter. There's left liberal Twitter. Mm -hmm. I assume there's a right-wing Twitter, like Trump people. They have their own (sighs) world, but I never see that. I never see ever. I mean, I don't follow any of those people. They don't follow me, I'm sure. Well, maybe some of them do. Oh, I, I doubt it.
2: They could stand to learn something.
3: Oh, but I don't think they do. I mean, I don't think, no, I, I'd be very surprised. So I have like, in theory, like 200,000 followers or so, but I would say that they're all either sort of like me or like my friends mm. or they're academics or they're writers or they like cats, you know. But no one of them is a fierce uh, right-wing person or beliefs in QAnon, or Trump, or anti-abortion, you know, it's kind of just these different political perspectives. But, you know, if you look in the right places, you learn a lot. The main thing that I learned from Twitter was so much about law enforcement misconduct across the United States. I mean, we all know that police can be brutal, but I, I never knew there was so much of it. That really was an eye opener. So I was getting all these these tweets. I finally had to cut back on it because I was so depressed, you know, like shooting a youth in, in the back, you know. Or they're also very nasty to homeless people or mentally ill people. This isn't just black people. But I mean, they are really bullies and horrible people. And I didn't really know that. You could read the New York Times and never have a glimmer of a lot that's going on in America. So Twitter is pretty good at. Having a you know a platform for that, mm. so that's one very positive thing about Twitter, but I think I just don't personally take it that seriously. I think there's people sitting at their computers that maybe they're in an office and they have nothing else to do, or you know like they type something and then it goes away i don't I don't think it's very real
2: see that seems to be perhaps the problem that you get yourself into that I've seen over and over again where you fire off some tweet. little thing. I mean, just this week, you wrote this this piece. You said, a friend who was a literary agent told me that he cannot even get editors to read first novels by young white male writers, no matter how good. They're just not interested. This is heartbreaking for writers who may, in fact, be brilliant and critical of their own privilege.
3: Well, it was in response to a conversation with Daniel Thurode and It was basically like talking to him, you know. But it should be understood that black people and people of color have even more trouble. I mean, I write about this a lot. So it's like taking one little thing out of all of that and pretending that all this other wasn't there.
2: The reason I brought it up is because if you read your work, I think you've been particularly attuned to and sensitive of matters of race and when this happens online it seems to distract from the work that you have spent your life doing the work that you and i have been pouring over in this conversation
3: well i guess i just don't think it's that important i mean i can't imagine that anyone who who has a certain political position is going to read my writing anyway i mean it's like Let's say 5,000 people are not going to read my next book, but they weren't going to anyway. You know, like these are not people who, it just doesn't seem very important to me. I mean, everybody online, everybody gets all kinds of responses all the time. It isn't, you know, it isn't really just me. I just don't think it's that important. Mm. I guess I just don't care that much.
2: Well, something that you do care about for a long time has been teaching, and I feel like we'd be remiss to not talk about it before we leave. You said, when it comes to teaching, I rarely try to strengthen a writer's student's weaknesses. We don't have time to improve our weaknesses. We have time only to concentrate upon our strengths. In that line of logic, what do you think at 84 are your strengths as a writer?
3: I don't uh, think of myself that way. I can't imagine any writer or artist who says no, what are my strengths? I mean, basically, we're doing our work, and you go and you do the project that's, that's before you. I'm not thinking about something lofty, like where will this be in the pantheon of books? You know, will be on a <laughs> shelf. or I, I never think of those. Most writers or literary writers don't think of who their audience is. They don't necessarily even think they'll be published. It's more like grappling with a problem that's in front of you, Maybe like you have a, some clay and you're shaping the clay and it's the act of shaping it that's sort of fascinating. And you don't think, well, is this going to be just another one of my heads that I've done already? Or will it be a failure? Or will I hate it? You sort of don't think of those questions because the future isn't there yet, mm-hmm. you know? And also because I am, I am older. I mean, I've, I've lost my husband. I'm a widow twice, so I don't have the emotions that other people have, you know. I don't have those many emotions left. Like, if I'm vilified on Twitter or if I'm praised on Twitter, it's almost the same thing. I don't have a lot of emotion left. It's almost hard to imagine where you get to a point where your emotions are sort of drained out, you know, like through a drain, that's it.
2: Is that how you feel?
3: I feel that way fairly, fairly, yeah. I think that's the way lots of people feel who've lost widows and widowers. I think if they're being honest, they will say, well, you know, I try to feel some emotion, but it's not the way it used to be.
2: You think there's a finite amount?
3: As Gradgrind said in the Charles Dickens novel, quote, a man wears out. Yeah, yeah, I think people do. I mean, how many times could a person fall in love? You know, could you fall in love 20 times, you know, 11 times, three times, or really one time? You know, like, those are questions that people probably ask themselves. As somebody who's already been married four or five times, the the next time is not going to be like the first time, you know, and... It's naive to think that people can just start over again, I think.
2: I guess i would not heard it described like that before, through the drain that you're talking about.
3: Well, people don't usually talk about things like that. Maybe there's a taboo. You must have older people in your family who've lost their spouses, like a grandmother, grandfather. How are they getting along? Well, maybe never mind. I mean, but if you've been married, say, 50 years, some people are married 60 years and they lose a spouse, it's a, actually undescribable. Like, you can't imagine It's like, say, one of your arms just is gone. You know, like, people would say, hey, you're getting along pretty well without your arm. You know, you didn't kill yourself. Well, you, like, it's your arm is gone. <laughs> or people see you in a wheelchair and you have no legs, hey, you're looking pretty good, you know. It must be all right. It's just kind of people who who have suffered losses, make all kinds of adjustments like amputations and they keep going, you know. So they do keep going and that's what we all do.
2: I guess I am uh I'm sort of moved and impressed by your ability to keep going especially as we sit in your house here after reading this new book, it's funny you say you have a kind of finite amount of emotions that you, that you go back to the well and there, there seems to be nothing left.
3: Well, I'm thinking my personal life more than writing. The writing excites me as, as problems in form too and, and vocabulary and creating characters. I mean, I love to hear people talk. I love drama. I love the stage. And like Ponytail, the character, and Y.K., just the way they're talking to me is interesting. The way they're talking, like in my head. And uh, when Y.K. just tells Hannah off, you know, well, I never loved you, are you an idiot? How could you believe I ever loved you? I thought, you know, that's so great that he's saying something she should have known. Mm. And then when she discovers that she's not gonna give up her pearl, she can't give them up. To me, it was kind of a wonderful moment. You know, she, she's not going to give up her pearls. Like, this is something very important to her. Uh, so there, there are moments in the writing that are discoveries to me that are kind of emotional, like little moments, but they're not my personal life.
2: In the beginning of this conversation, you quoted some writer who talked about dreaming back over your life.
3: Yes, William Butler Reeds.
2: And I thought you would read a passage from your life, August 11th, 1983, and see where it lands with you.
3: Is this the August, 1980, oh. in the rather dirty outside mirror? Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't think I want to read that too much, because I make reference to Ray, my husband, so I'd rather not do that. And anything, of, anything in my past is sad for me because all these times were happier times. I hate to see that, you know, that I've lost that. Yeah. I mean, almost any time before a person loses a spouse is a happier time.
2: You asked me uh, about loss, about someone in my family, how they're doing. And as I started to imagine the people in my life, you said, oh, well, never mind.
3: You don't have to answer, right?
2: But I I, I feel I ought to, given how open you've been with me. And there are two people in mind, and and, uh, they're both older than you. Both have lost their partner. And it's hard because if you ask me on one day, I'll tell you they're as sharp as ever.
3: Of course.
2: You know, I, I can recall a, a fun turn of phrase or some memory that we laughed about. And then if you ask me like you have today, where I can only think of the bad.
3: Yeah. You know, also older people who are in like in a family... They do put on a little performance, like my own mother, she was so, and my grandmother they they were really just wonderful people, and they would want you to feel you to feel happy, you know, so if their heart was broken or they're feeling really depressed, they would never they would never tell you you know because they don't want you to feel bad, you know, so uh, you don't always know within a family what people are really thinking, which is just a fact of life. It's not hypocritical. It's just that in relationships also, like sometimes in marriages, if one person has some bad news and feels really bad, he might not He might not want to share it with the other. He want, you know, just let's have a nice evening. Let's have a nice dinner and watch Netflix or something. Why, why should I make him feel bad because something happened to me? Hmm. So you don't always know how people are processing things.
2: Well, one thing you've done over and over again, no matter the mood, was sit down at your desk (laughs) and begin to write.
3: Yeah, keep going.
2: And I have this passage here from a Paris Review interview that was published in 1978 that perhaps could be the thing we leave.
3: Okay, with my friend Robert Phillips who passed away a few months ago. So that's sad.
2: just give me one moment to find this. this is a lot of pages. I have it here, though. I think it's
3: you've done an immense amount of homework for this.
2: I hope it's been OK.
3: It has. Yeah. The thing about being in the canoe together is that one person has more strength than the other. And you find that out like one person, the paddle starts to it's not doing what it was supposed to do. You know,
2: <laughs> I got you. I'm ha- I, I, I am younger. I'm supposed to row it longer, faster, and harder. <laughs> and you have done more than enough.
3: Paddle, not row.
2: Paddle. Thank you for the correction. Well, look, see, you're you're still here. You're helping me out. No matter the mood. There you go.
3: One must be pitiless about this matter of mood. In a sense, the writing will create the mood. If art is, as I believe it to be, a genuinely transcendental function, a means by which we rise out of limited parochial states of mind, then it should not matter very much what states of mind or emotion we are in. Generally, I found this to be true. I have forced myself to begin writing when I've been utterly exhausted, when I felt my soul as thin as a playing card, when nothing has seemed worth enduring for another five minutes. And somehow the activity of writing changes everything or appears to do so. Yes, that's I do believe that, and sometimes going for a bicycle ride does the same thing.
2: Mm. Well, I so thank you for uh, doing that again and again.
3: Well, thank you. It's so nice to speak with you, Sam. I'm glad we got together.
2: Joyce Carol Oates, thank you for uh, having me in your home.
3: Well, thanks for coming. It's been really a pleasure.
2: Anytime. That's our show. Special thanks this week to Sarah Nisbet, Penguin Random House, and of course, Joyce Carol Oates. You can purchase her new book, Babysitter, wherever you do your reading. To learn more about Joyce's work, visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, I'd recommend our talks with writers like George Saunders, Margaret Atwood, David Sedaris, Jhumpa Lahiri, Liz Gilbert, Ocean Wong, Jennifer Egan, and Nikki Giovanni. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to support the show, you can purchase one of our mugs. They come in cream or navy at talkeasypod.com slash shop. That's talkeasypod.com slash shop. If you want to support the show in other ways, sharing the program with a friend is really incredibly helpful. Uh, The other thing you can do is just give us five stars on Spotify, Apple, wherever you listen. Reviewing our show on these platforms is still the best way for new listeners to find Talk Easy. As always, Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janik Zabravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Lindsay Ellis and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our assistant editor is Clarice Guevara. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Paulina Suarez. I'd also like to thank our team at Pushkin Industries: Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with a very special new episode around Labor Day weekend. Until then, stay safe.
4: The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you, and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry, and me, I'll be there too. Enter now at T-Mobile.com slash unconventionalawards. See you there.